Hello, St. Lukers, and welcome to Your Week with St. Luke's, your weekly podcast that gives you deeper insight into Scripture, and particularly the Scripture that we will be preaching on each week in worship. Now, this week, we begin my favorite season of the Christian year, the first season of the Christian year, so Happy New Year. Uh, We begin Advent. In this Advent, we are going to be looking at the presence with a C-E of Christmas, digging deep into scripture back to the prophet Isaiah and how we see God already foreshadowing the coming of Jesus hundreds of years before for the Israelite people. Now, since we'll be spending the next few weeks in Isaiah, let's start with a quick refresher on this particular book. Now, this is often a book that we have favorite individual verses from, but it's not one that we take as a whole very often. And part of the reason for that is it's actually not one singular prophetic book. Most scholars actually divide it into three three sections uh, known as 1st, 2nd, and 3rd Isaiah. Now, the division between 1st and 2nd Isaiah um, happens between chapters and 39 and 40. And it's a key one to understand, and so let's look at that history uh, briefly. Now, here in 1st Isaiah, we're looking at events in the 6th century BCE, when the Babylonians had conquered Judah, destroying Jerusalem and the temple, and sending the Israelite people into exile in Babylonia. Now, 1st Isaiah is an exilic writing, means that it's speaking specifically to the Jews in exile, living out of their homeland and having to deal with the realization that their home has been taken and their temple has been destroyed. But in 538, the Persian king Cyrus conquered the Babylonians, ending the Jewish exile and allowing them to return to and reclaim Judah and therefore the city of Jerusalem as well. Now, 2nd and 3rd Isaiah are post-exilic writings, speaking to the Jews, restoring their home and rebuilding their temple. Now, all of the scriptures we will work with this Advent are from that post-exilic time, after the exile, after Cyrus had conquered the Babylonians, from chapter 40 and beyond. It's addressing the community who is in process of returning to their homeland, Now, it's not clear the exact time frame of this writing. Uh, We're not sure how long it had been since Cyrus's rescue, but it seems that the temple has not yet been rebuilt in the same ways that we see uh, that being discussed in Ezra and Nehemiah. And these sections seem to cover a few generations, but in all of the prophecy of Isaiah, there's a theme of hope toward full restoration of the Jerusalem community. So, With that broad context, let's take a look at this week's text specifically. Now, you'll notice that the lectionary does not take these texts in chronological or sequential order. In fact, this week's text is the latest of the three we'll be focusing on. So let's begin with Isaiah 64, verses 1 through 9. If only you would tear open the heavens and come down. Mountains would quake before you like fire igniting brushwood or making water boil. If you would name, make your name known to your enemies, the nations would tremble in your presence. When you accomplished wonders beyond all our expectations, when you came down, mountains quaked before you. From ancient times, No one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God but you who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. You look after those who gladly do right, 
They will praise you for your ways. But you are angry when we sinned. You hid yourself when we did wrong. We have all become like the unclean. All our righteous deeds are like a menstrual rag. All of us wither like a leaf. Our sins, like the wind, carry us away. No one calls on your name. No one bothers to hold on to you, for you have hidden yourself from us and have handed us over to our sin. But now, Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay and you are our potter. All of us are the work of your hand. Don't rage so fiercely, Lord. Don't hold our sins against us forever. But gaze now on your people, all of us. There's a lot of emotion there, right? It's because what we have here first and foremost is a prayer. The author is speaking directly to God in lament and petition. This prayer is emphatically asking God to act dramatically, to decisively save God's people. While second Isaiah cast a glorious vision of restoration of the temple, some of which we'll look at next week, this later passage from third Isaiah reflects a community dealing with the reality that the restoration they are hoping for simply hasn't happened yet. So the prophet here, in no small words, is asking God for a change in their circumstances or in how God interacts with them as a people. Now, the form of this text indicates that it could have been used in a worship setting, and it follows a standard pattern where there's a recounting of what God has done in the past, especially in the act of creation, in order to frame their current suffering and make sense of their demands for God's action. Now, this tradition of lament is not unique to Isaiah. We see it throughout books like Psalms and Lamentations. And actually, it's one of the forms that we often disregard in the modern church. We gloss over the hard stuff, let's just be honest. The anger at God, the questioning of why God isn't acting in the way that we would expect God to act. And to remember the good old days, what has come before. Because the people know that God has acted in dramatic ways in the past for their ancestors, all the way back to the creation of the world, and they remind God of that in their prayers. So it would be easy to dismiss this prayer as a yearning for what was before, a people who are looking behind instead of looking forward. However, as one scholar put it, the tradition of lament does not invoke the past as nostalgia, nor does it dismiss the present in despair. Rather, it draws on the collective memories of God's people as a source of hope for the future. Hmm. The reality of this community is that they had come back to their ruined city. They are experiencing disorientation in the wake of exile. It had been decades since they had been in their land, so while it was still home, technically it didn't look or feel like home yet. They remember the stories of their ancestors, though, when God has spoken and acted decisively. So their seemingly dramatic request for God to tear open the heavens is simply referring back to the times they have known God to work in big ways like God's meeting with Moses on Sinai, in which the heavens were opened. 
Their understanding of the cosmos was that God was up there, above the dome of heaven. So they were not speaking in a metaphor, per se, in this text. They truly wanted God to rip a hole in the sky and descend to them because they believed that while God's true dwelling place was the heavens above, God's entrance into the human realm would be disruptive, dramatically changing their present circumstances. But in this request, they also ensured that they were taking accountability for their own misgivings. Part of this prayer and petition is also a confession of sin and a profession of faith. They know that they have been sinful. They do have something of a guilty conscience. They talk about God hiding from them. And we might cringe at the image of God hiding. We know God to be a God of seeking us out and pursuing us through provenient grace But this acknowledgement of God's hiding was actually part of their confession. They were confirming that while they are indeed God's people and they are making a specific and significant petition to God, they are letting go of the notion that they have the ability to control or contain God. They see uh, their understanding of God as absent uh, for a time as a wake-up call a wake-up call to the consequences of their sin and the opportunity to deconstruct a distorted set of beliefs and practices so that they can reconnect with their calling to be God's people back in the city that God had given them. Now, the final part of the petition is a reiteration of their belief, their belief in God and their belief in God's deep and abiding and eternal love for them. The image of God as potter connects God's character to that of creator, creator of everything, including them. They are God's handiwork. And of course, God, the creator of the universe, could choose to tear open a piece of God's creation in order to rescue his creations, right? They believed all of this. And they felt confident in their petition because they could look back on how God had acted before, giving them hope for the future even though their present seemed impossible. And so this passage guides us into our first week of Advent, focusing on the gift of hope from our past. So what do we think this passage is inviting us into? Well, first and foremost, this text invites us to explore the chapters of our lives, thinking through the ways that God has formed and reformed us in different times and spaces. And in that way, we then are able to look at our lives as part of God's story instead of how we often get it backward and think of God as part of our story. All too often we hurry to emphasize our personal agency or importance and we think of our lives as as us-centric. But in order to really sit in present circumstances, whether you're in post-exilic Judah or Uh, 2023, Florida, in order to sit in our present circumstances and hope for the future, we have to be able to look at the past focused on God's action. Because chances are, your past actions are not always ones in which you would find hope for yourself in the future. But if we're paying attention Like the post-exilic Israelites, they can recognize that their past transgressions are only a small part of God's bigger story. 
And they believe so deeply that they will continue to be part of that covenant promise, that the God who redeemed the worst of their ancestors has redeemed the worst of them and continues to offer hope for future redemption as well. But in order to do that, there's a vulnerability in this text that if we wrote or prayed our version of it might challenge us to take us out of our comfort zone. That's the invitation this Advent, to open ourselves to hope simply because of God's faithfulness that we can see woven throughout each of our stories. One writer said it perfectly, said, hope is what is left when your worst fears have been realized and you are no longer optimistic about the future. Hope is what comes with a broken heart willing to be mended. This is a season of opening up our lives and our souls with active anticipation and renewed hope. So let's see if we can start Advent this year believing deeply that we are claimed by God who perseveres as our parent, that we are formed by God who continues to take ownership and mold us, and we are forgiven by God whose grace knows no limits. We are named by God who declares that we are God's people.